I've read The Wasp Factory a couple of times and I'm kind of weirdly fascinated by it. <laughs> and I can't really put it down. It's bleak. And the thing with Ian Banks is, unlike other authors, the bleakness is part of the joke. The first chapter is called The Sacrifice Poles. This guy called Frank, who is setting up these poles in the ground with animal heads stuck on them. Um, and he does various things with them as well, including peeing on them at some point. Goes pretty quickly to the severed animal heads on sticks being pissed on. If this book was written today, he would be on every terrorist watch list you could possibly imagine. Hello and welcome to Shark Liver Oil. I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello. And it's time for a new book, Dave. Oh, yeah? Are you ready for... Oh. The Wasp Factory. I am. By Ian Banks. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah a- no, I'm, I'm dead excited about this, because I'm a huge Ian Banks fan, but as a matter of fact, this is his first book, and I've never read it. So, um, so I am... Well, I mean, I was delighted to get started on it, as, as you may discover in the course of this podcast. Um, my experience with it has been patchy, but, <laughs> but, but, but that's all part of the fun, Matt. That's all part of the fun. That, that's really funny because um, from my perspective, I'm kind of coming from almost the opposite angle where I've only ever read one other Ian Banks book and I absolutely loathed it. <laughs> So, um, but having said that, I've read The Wasp Factory a couple of times and I'm kind of weirdly fascinated by it um, and I can't really put it down. So, so yeah, it, 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 it's weird. <laughs> oh, the one well, it's it. Ho- hopefully, hilarity will ensue, although I'll admit that for this particular book, we are running uphill if, if that's our aim. Yeah, so if you haven't read The Wasp Factory, let me warn you now, if you're planning to read along <laughs> with us, it's pretty grim. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've already... Uh, we'll, we'll get into it, but yeah, it's pretty grim. Um, so, yeah, it, it is Ian Banks' first book. It's funny, he, he wrote in... Um, there's a little sort of preface in mind. Have you got that in yours? No, I haven't, actually. Okay, so it's just a little note from the author. Um, and he says that, obviously, it's his first successful novel. Um, he said it after he just got rejection after rejection slip from publishers as he was trying to write his sci-fi stuff. And he basically yeah. sort of took a step back and thought, well, okay, no one's picking up on this sci-fi stuff. I'll try and get a different book published, and then I'll go back to the sci-fi stuff. And it worked for him because he did very well as a sci-fi yeah. author after this, didn't he? He did, yeah, and I'm a fan of the sci-fi as well. Although I have to say, it's a bit more, it's a bit more kind of genre, and mm. so it's crazy to me that he managed to make a whole career for himself in apparently more reputable literature by mistake. Mm. Yeah, yeah. He said, he said one of the one of the sort of key themes of the book, whether he wants, and we can go back to this as we go through it. But um, it's, it, it's about uh, childhood not being innocent. Um, which is pretty, uh, pretty on the <laughs> nose. Say stall out there, didn't he? Bloody hell! <laughs> yeah, he, um, he he says a few other things. Says he wanted it to be pro-feminist, anti-militaristic, and satirise religion. So we'll um, we'll get a feel for for whether those are true as well. Um, if you come into Charlotte, that, that's quite that's quite cerebral for us, isn't it? Um, we it don't is. normally discuss I, that's themes. That's worth saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, although although it's worth saying that Ian Banks landed on those themes and did not develop anything. Like he just kept talking about those themes for his entire writing career, and I quite <laughs> liked it. <but. laughs> yeah. Uh, if you come into us for the first time, what we do um, 
this is what we'd be doing with the Wasp Factory this time. We take a book and break it down into a few parts and then discuss them week by week. So almost do like a page by page sort of guide through it. So with the Wasp Factory, we're going to break it down into three parts. So this week we're reading from, uh, it's great, it's got clear chapters for once. Finally a book with clear chapters. So we're reading from the start to... <laughs> You're really hurting from that, aren't you? Just doing any book that's got Game no chapters in it. You're like... Game of Thrones. We're <laughs> uh, into Arya, page 196, uh, if you've got the Horror and Stormson edition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, this time we're going from uh, the start till the chapter called the Bomb Circle, uh, up to, but not including that. Uh, next week we're going from the Bomb Circle to as far as the Wasp Factory, and then the week after that from the Wasp Factory to the end. So that's what you need to do. That's your homework, if you're reading along with us. Um, and of course, if you want to uh, get involved in the conversation, sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com is the email address, and at sharkliveroyal is our Twitter account. Okay, Dave. So, so we right. just dive straight in, or do you want to do us? Do, do you want to just Let's give me a, a first impression of Ian Banks? Because you say you, you enjoyed some of his other books in the past. Oh, yeah. So, Ian Banks is, um, he writes the way I wish I could write in terms of his, the way he uses language is just incredibly, like, adept. Like, he's just really good at, like, it's not impenetrable, right? He's not using language to keep you out. He's using language to keep you interested. And I just love anybody that can do that. Mm. So he'll always describe things in this incredibly um, colourful and evocative sort of a way. Um, And that is just amazing. Um, He was Scottish and he loved Scotland and he loved the Scottish uh, landscape. And so whenever he's describing that... I don't think I've come across anything that's nearly as good at capturing what that place is like and how it feels. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love the Scottish landscape. I love Scotland. So um, so I, I've always been a huge fan of him for that. Um, but he's also got this streak of like unbelievably kind of mordant humour. He's, he's, he's bleak. And the thing with Ian Banks is, unlike other authors, the bleakness is part of the joke. Yeah, and he manages to find the comedy in it, where and which is why I like it because usually when people want to be bleak, they it is like walking backwards through treacle mixed with shit. It's just horrible. <laughs> whereas whereas this is actually like it's 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 horror. Like what the the subject of what he's talking about is awful, but he manages to do it in a way that keeps you engaged, and I think that's just incredibly effective. Yeah, yeah. The impression I, I I've got with the Wasp Factory is. Um, I keep reading and it keeps coming to my mind thinking you know don't judge an author just because of what he's writing about because I always think writers should be able to write absolutely anything uh, without fear of you saying oh why is he writing this oh that's pretty grim so um so yeah, this is a good test of that because this is a, such a <laughs> mental book. Is. <laughs> well, and I'll tell you what, I have a very, very strong feeling that if this book was written today, he would be on every terrorist watch list you could possibly imagine. <laughs> like, I j- it's really funny because I'm reading it and it is supposed to be about, you know, it's supposed to be about like boldly challenging taboos and tearing down kind of... Um, fondly held myths about childhood and shit and being like no look this is the real harsh world but it was written in 1985 and so in the intervening 31 years I look at this and I go oh it's from a simpler time isn't it (laughs) when you could write something like this and not basically have to spend six weeks of a holiday just getting into the United States whenever you travel there (laughs) whereas fucking hell this now my word yeah um 
Yeah. So, so I mean, one of the things that he's, I think he's really good at, um, and we'll, we'll come on to it later, is um, building sort of, as you said, being very evocative and building a world. He does that very well in this in this uh, in this book, especially. So um, the first chapter is called the Sacrifice Poles. It's a good start, and the, the book's about this guy called this this guy called Frank, who is uh, just sixteen, and uh, basically is this teenager living on an island. And just being a bit crazy. Well, actually, let's be honest. Just he's pretty far down the road to being utterly insane. Um, yeah, but yeah, so yeah, it's, a, it's a it's a good object lesson in the difference between crazy <laughs> and legitimate, diagnosable mental illness. Yeah. So the sacrifice poles. Here's a, this this is this is a good start um, to that sort of theme because uh, it's so this teenager. Um, setting up these poles which are basically this poles in the ground with animal heads stuck on them um and he does various things with them as well including peeing on them at some point um yeah he sets out his sets out his stall banks doesn't he here <laughs> he goes yeah. goes pretty quickly to the severed animal heads on sticks being pissed on yeah <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but I, I, this is part of the thing that fascinates me a bit about it. It's so like you, you sort of dropped immediately into it. It's this sort of dank, sort of cold, clammy, um, like miserable place with this really disturbed guy just running around doing whatever the hell he wants. And it's like, oh, it just feels different as sort of a, as a, in terms of like an experience of a book to read. It's just it certainly so. Does, yeah. It's just so sort of nakedly. Here's some really weird stuff. Maybe it may speak to sort of my enjoyment of horror actually, because it's a different kind oh, of that's horror. That's interesting. Isn't it? That's very interesting, and it's interesting that it doesn't speak to my profound dislike of horror. <laughs> is that like because I'm I'm rolling with this? I believe it to be part of a world whose purpose isn't only to disgust me, even though he's clearly working pretty hard to be disgusting. Mm. Um, I feel like there's kind of there's more at hand here. Mm. Um, I also think this is a great example of the sort of the way Ian Banks often writes, which is he'll talk about something and you just have to kind of hold all of these mysterious words in your head mm. until two pages later he defines what he's actually talking about there. Yeah. And it's great. He uses language really well to build this sense of like, like uh, mystery and disgust in mm. that you're not entirely sure what it is he's talking about, but you know for certain that you don't want to be, let us pick an example out of the air and just for the sake of argument say, eating your breakfast whilst reading this book, which is what I was doing this morning. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Terrible move. Awful move. Awful move. Yeah. So um, so, that, so he's running around the sacrifice by the sacrifice poles, um, Frank. He sees this policeman arrive. Turns out the policeman's uh, pedalling his way up the drive because, or the drive, the sort of pathway, because um, I don't think they have a drive, because uh, Frank's brother, Eric, who's um, in some kind of hospital for the uh, people with mental health problems, massive ones, has escaped. And, yes. um, and the policeman's coming just to tell, to tell them. So a bit later on, he, uh, Frank's in the in the kitchen with his dad. I mean, he, you really, again, it's, it's very evocative. This you've got the um, I, I could almost place myself in this very cold and like sort of damp house um, in this sort of fairly soulless kitchen with um, the this dad who, I mean, he's he's never had much of a chance, Frank, because his dad's a bit sort of crazy as well, isn't he? He's got this bad leg. He hobbles around on. He um, apparently is some sort, of, some sort of chemist. He's got some kind of doctorate in chemistry or biology or something. And yeah. he he has this thing where he co- 
constantly like sh- randomly shoots out questions about sort of the exact height of a table or like with the yeah. door frame and has labeled everything in the house with stickers bearing that information mm. which is not i mean is certainly a sign of more interest in the precise dimension of things than one would perhaps ordinarily expect yeah. not necessarily a sign of illness however some of the other things that he has done they definitely tend towards the idea that perhaps an intervention by somebody with a slightly more down-to-earth philosophy might have helped a certain point yeah. well, with this situation the the big one for me there was the idea that he uh, at one point Frank says that he was his birth was never registered yeah and he doesn't it basically legally doesn't exist mm. and because because his dad's like a hippie or something but his dad's the sort of hippie that doesn't like other human beings yeah yeah and there's there's this bit where when he does have some people round um, <laughs> with with his measurement thing maybe that in itself isn't quite as is just a bit eccentric but he's also He'll mention it like randomly, so there'll be, he'll have people round and they'll be talking about something else, and he'll suddenly like just look at them and say, "Did you know that this table is thirty-seven point eight <laughs> centimeters tall exactly?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. his description of that was amazing, isn't it? It's like kind of he'll just walk over and say that, and then raise his eyebrows a couple of times as though he said something like unutterably rakish, <laughs> and then just walk off. <laughs> All right, cool, 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 yeah. cool, 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 cool. Yeah. They've got a strange relationship, him and his dad, because um, even later on, I think in one of the, one of the chapters we're going to do today, um, Frank says he doesn't really, he's not really sure about what it is, what the relationship is himself, because he kind of wants his dad to stick around, because if his dad died, he might have to go into a home or something. But there doesn't seem to be, there may be affection there, but if it is, it's wrapped up very well, there is, but it's, it's expressed and felt in a very unusual way. Um, his dad seems to constantly lie to him. I mean, one of the first yeah. introductions we get is uh, he says, "I'm going to, I'll go back and, and see my dad. Uh, he might actually, he might tell me something, and it might even be the truth." Um, and there's all these various things that he's like because he's been home educated. His dad sort of taught him real stuff for the most part because he wants him to be educated but at the same time has taught him a lot of rubbish as well one of my favourites was um, let me just let me just find it <laughs> I think I know the one you're going to say yeah it's, uh, it's he, thought, he was taught that fellatio was a character in Hamlet <laughs> no, I was going to say the other one is that he said um, it, uh, sometimes his dad would leave this island that they live on, like kind of close to the mainland, and yeah. just go somewhere for a day. And it, when he would ask him where he was going, he would say he was going to a small town, the name of which was spelt P H U K E. Where are you going? Well, I'm going to fuck today, actually. <laughs> yeah. So he's uh, so he's he's got a yeah he's got a sort of he's. Well, he's messed up, isn't he? As yeah. well, like I mean, it's like it's 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 entertainingly rendered, hmm. but he says that he believes his dad is doing this in order to maintain his sense of control, and in fact, that he sees this sort of control over information and knowledge as being appropriate to a father's role towards a child, mm-hmm. which really does want make you want to beg questions about the manner in which precisely he was raised. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're like. Uh, all right. Yeah. And this thing with, with secrets as well and this divide is um, is really interesting because there are two rooms in the house that illustrate this really well. So there's the study, which um, is always locked and is basically is his dad's. And 
and Frank <clears throat> has never been able to get in it. And then there's the attic, which his dad can't access because of his disability, which, which for all intents and purposes, is entirely Frank's and no one else can get up there. So there's, um, <clears throat> there's a, a bit of a divide in... You always feel they're trying to keep secrets from each other anyway, and then it's physically manifested as well yeah. um, in the house. Yeah. Which could, which could, could be more. Yeah, no, you know, there could be more. Not, to that not later, the only you know. strange thing in this house, I, I dare say, but we'll get to that. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so Frank is on having a very graphic crap on the toilet. Um, he, he goes into some detail, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. That, it really sort of struck me that I was like, yeah, this is the, this is very much the type of book it is. Um, and then the phone rings. He goes and gets it, and it's Eric, his brother. And I've got to say, um, Ian Banks, he, he captures sort of a conversation with someone who's mad really well here. Um, what did oh, you think really? of this? Yeah, well, I thought it was very... I've actually, yeah, now you mention it, I've often thought um, Ian Banks is very good at capturing what conversations sound like and how the kind of misunderstandings flow and kind of how you cut each other off and stuff. Hmm. And yeah, this is properly like... It's so strange to be launched into a book where not one of the first three characters you encounter is a kind of light and dark contrast. They're all just different shades of extremely strange. Yeah. And so you, so you've had you've had Frank who we meet pissing on poles he calls sacrifice poles which bear these seven heads of animals on. Yeah. Um right. And then you meet his dad who has an encyclopedic knowledge of the exact measurements of literally everything in his house and has written labels to represent this <laughs> and thinks of lying as being the fundamentally paternal duty of any father. And then you're like, all right, I wonder what his brother's like. I wonder if his brother's been somehow kind of put away for stuff that's not justified. I wonder if he's going to be the sort <laughs> a of... crime he didn't commit. Sort- exactly. No chance. A crime he, uh, at this point, seems perfectly likely to have committed. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, said, he's said, the one that got locked up. Like <laughs> what? Yeah, said crime apparently is this this guy um, was locked up for setting fire to dogs. Um, I mean, yeah. wow. And uh, well, there's a bit there's a bit later on where he talks about being in the town that they're from. Yeah, and people have started using Eric as as a sort of cautionary tale, like the yeah. boogeyman's man's gonna get you, but Eric's gonna get you. Yeah, and. And I, I, I kind of wondered if this wasn't Ian Banks doing the sort of, like... Because usually a, a figure like that... I don't know if this was like this where you grew up, but where I grew up, there were, there were, people would say that sort of shit. But it wasn't... They weren't real people. It was like, oh, there's some kind of boogeyman living over the hill and he's going to come and get you. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, it was... Yeah. Where, so the only other place in literature I know of where this happens, where there's a real person, where they're like, oh, he's crazy and he's going to get you, is Boo Radley from... Um, <laughs> from uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, Mockingbird, right? Yeah. Um, And and so I wonder if this is Ian Banks just being like, I'm so sick of people setting up monsters only for them to be truly misunderstood, lovely human beings. Fuck it. I'm going to write three monsters and they are going to be monstrous. (laughs) Have that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, and this is so. So the calls like Eric is all like he's very intense, isn't he? He's he's, he's very quickly goes from excited to shouty to fury. Um, very sudden changes. Yeah. I mean, the, the conversation ends with him trashing the telephone box, and you can just hear it being trashed. Um, yeah. This becomes a ruling theme actually with the calls with Eric. <laughs> um, 
And we find out that Frank can't leave the island for long. He's got this sort of mental condition where he feels like a tightness in his chest if he if he's away from the island for too long. It's this sort of solitary element of him. And as he's going mm. to bed, um, he thinks back. Here's the like bombshell at the end of the first chapter about how how he's um, he's killed three people, um, but it calls him. It calls it. Uh, so he says that quite nonchalantly. Yeah, I've killed, I've killed three people. He's sixteen, by the way, and um, and then he describes something, some kind of disability that he has, which he refers to as his little accident. But we don't know um, any more of that at the moment. Yeah, well, that's that's setting up something doubtless awful for the end of the book. I I kind of wonder here where he can possibly go, given how he started out. Like when you when you're kind of mapping the tone of this book and you start out this way, where on earth? What is the horrible and unspeakable thing that needs to be revealed through the plot? Like where else do we go? <laughs> well, we shall see if um, if it sort of if it manages to hit the um, the shock levels later on. I wouldn't put it we past will. him. Put it that way. Um, the the second chapter is called the Snake Park. Uh, it starts with um, Frank picking up a cindered wasp, so he obviously does something to. Oh, we did find out early in the in the last chapter as well that he likes to kill animals for fun, which will be, which will be um, sort of displayed very uh, vividly here in this chapter coming up. Uh, so he runs over to this place called the bunker, where he performs these weird sort of rituals. The sort of he's, he buries this wasp um, nearby. And um, wrapped in a picture, this is it, isn't it? He, be- he gets a wasp, puts it in a matchbox, wraps the matchbox in a picture of his dad and his brother, and his dad's holding a picture of his brother's dead mother. Yeah, and that's what he wraps the wasp in the box up in before he buries it. Yeah, and there's a piece of me at this point that doesn't want to know why. <laughs> like you, that sort of thing is usually cryptic, so that you're like, "Oh, I wonder what possible reason there could be behind this." And I'm just like, "No, don't want to know. Don't need to know. That's fine. Yeah. You do that shit, and I will be in a different book." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we we get um we get a feel for what he does on the island as well. It's basically completely sort of unfettered youth. This isn't it. So yeah. he, he's basically just got himself to. He has to entertain himself all the time, but he's allowed to do anything. And this is the direction that um, Ian Banks thinks that some some kids may go under that circumstance, which is um, he's been having these wars on the island where he he basically like pretend wars, although close. So he he's like, <laughs> yeah, but, but with somewhat more explosive ordnance yeah. than your average pretend war. Right? <laughs> so so he had the, the the aerosols versus the soldiers, which I think probably involved a that. lot of like lighting a match next to a, a deodorant can and burning. Uh, Burning toy soldiers. Don't do it, kids. Yeah, but, it's dangerous. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but this the, this guy's form makes me think that it will have been something other than that. It will be like that. Will be the the base level, yeah. and then he will have realised after three seconds of doing it that it turns out if you burn like a a vole, somehow it changes the colour of the flame, and that's amazing. And then it turns out that when they die, snails become full of explosive gas, and so you're going to do that as well. You'll just find some way of making it even more, like, scatological yeah. than, it, <laughs> than it already is. Yeah. Like, I think the, Melting the, plastic and blowing shit up. Yeah. The dramatic climax of that war as well was, um, yeah, some um, 
some like soldier managers to get to the aerosol's base and plant a bomb. So I'd imagine that involved just a pile of aerosol cans going up as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I will find out because I feel like this guy, he's not, I, he's graduated from your average 16-year-old level of I know how to blow shit up, which is to say matches or loads and loads and loads of matches, right? Yeah. Like he's he's gone a little bit beyond a kind of a cork with a load of caps wrapped around it. Yeah. Um, which other people did. I never did that. <laughs> no, that no, would be reckless. Of course, yeah. no, of course not. Um, <laughs> he also, when he's not having these wars, he also builds dams. And these seem quite amazing. He builds these really complex... I mean, he, he, uses, he uses an aqueduct for one of them. Um, and- right! <laughs> you ever tried to do that? He seems to be saying that he made an aqueduct on a beach as well. Yeah. Which is like, at that point, you're not just doing civil engineering. You're yeah. turning sand into something big enough to be, like, an aqueduct. Yeah. If you How are you even like? I'm, I'm not. I get into like full on Ron Burgundy mode. I'm. I'm not even angry. I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you don't know what an aqueduct is, it's like a basically a bridge for water, um, and he builds these like this like pretend village underneath it, and uh, it all gets washed away. I mean, with the exception of how complex the dam is, this is exactly the kind of thing that most kids do. I mean, I think I did it when I was little. Like, oh make yeah, a village absolutely. And make a little yeah. Dam. yeah. Yeah, um, yeah but did beach. you do the thing that he does immediately after this, where you pay very close attention to how many of the people that you've placed in the village survive the flood that you bring upon them? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, I think we, you and me might need to have a talk. All right, just do me a favour, right? Stay away from matches and rabbits. Don't go anywhere near rabbits. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that's where my similarities with uh, with Frank beginning end. I certainly, I certainly too, hope. too late now, Matt. Yeah. Too late now. You've outed yourself. Yeah. So his um his, his dad later on says he's going out, um, and as soon as his dad leaves, um, Frank runs upstairs to check the study, but it's still locked. But he thinks one day he'll forget. Um, just as an aside, he's brew- he's brewing homebrew under his bed. Um, is is uh is Frank? <laughs> I'm not quite sure why. Well, he's weird, isn't he? He's all over the map here. Some of the stuff he does is positively creepy, sort of sacrifice to the nature gods type shit. And then some of it is just, like, fairly fairly enterprising, but otherwise quite ordinary teenage behaviour. I mm. want some alcohol, so I'm going to brew it under my bed, yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he then picks up his air rifle, because he's going hunting rabbits... Um, he prefers to use the catapult, but um, rabbits are too fast, apparently. Um, on his on his way over to the to the rabbits, he thinks about some of the uh, some of his relatives. He's got there's a streak, there's a sort of a suicidal or strange death streak in his family. It seems um, yeah. he gives a couple of examples here. One's Leviticus Coldhain. Is it Coldhain? <laughs> uh, Coldhain, I think. But yeah. anybody calling their kid Leviticus. <laughs> does not give enough of a shit about their well-being in future life, do they? Yeah, well, Leviticus is described as having weapons-grade stupidity, which I thought was quite good. <laughs> um, and he's killed in a strange way because he moves to South Africa. He's basically this racist who moves to South Africa. Um, mm. And then um, he's killed when a um, a guy falls from like a, a few floors up in a building and basically lands on him. Yeah, um, and it, it's it, the way it's written suggests that this guy is has been killed. He's like he's been thrown from the building. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. So that's Leviticus, and then there's Athelwold Trapley. 
Athelwald. Um, Honestly. I think that the, the great thing about that name is the juxtaposition between Athelwald and then Trapley. <laughs> <laughs> it is, there's definitely a poetry to it, isn't there? Like, yeah. if you were gonna, if you're going to go with a name like Athelwald, you better hope that you've got a surname full of nice spiky sounds to kind of offset that kind of yeah athelwald which sounds like a brand of cider that was banned in the 30s for being too toxic <laughs> yeah and he um athelwald decided he wants to kill himself and then did it in a very messy way because he he switched the gas on and sat down in his house to sort of gas himself <laughs> then decided to light up while he waited <laughs> blew the house sorry up. It gets better. Blew the house up, set himself on fire, ran around, jumped into... It's like a cartoon. Jumped into a um, a barrel, like, full of water, yeah. and then couldn't get out and drowned. <laughs> so, like, yeah. yeah, which is... Like, so, obviously on this podcast, we've we've explored the psyche of George R. R. Martin at extreme length. <laughs> and this seems like that is the kind of thing that Ian Banks does in 100 Words that George Martin would take a chapter over you know he'd do a chapter of the guy upside down struggling inside the barrel drowning yeah. you know what i mean thinking about his childhood whereas ian banks is like no 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 it's not the emotional experience that matters no it's the stupidity mm. and the depth of the macabre grossness of this that matters bosh bosh boss vomit 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 next scene <laughs> yeah and uh, he he thinks of his, another uncle uh, a bit later on in the chapter called harmsworth stove who again tried to kill himself and again he's got an amazing name and um and with this guy he, he tried to drill his own head um but the drill bit was too short so he Fuck did it and then drove to the hospital and said ow and then died i like my thing is why are you driving yourself to the hospital <laughs> like if your if your idea was to kill yourself and you know that's unnecessary like, you know, you've got lots to live for without doing, you know, unspeakable things with household appliances. But if you've decided to do that and you've put a hole in your head, I think we can all agree that basically any size of hole that's in your head, even if it doesn't kill you right away, is going to kill you pretty soon. Yeah. So, like, why fucking drive? Why, <laughs> like... Unless you were like, oh, now I've got an excuse to go out on the roads and be truly incapacitated and probably hurt loads more people. Bully yeah. for me. Yeah. And imagine if you just sort of drilled into your own head, you probably were not thinking particularly right. <laughs> you just thinking, oh, oh, the pain. I need to get something Matt, for the pain. <laughs> are, you, are you saying that I'm, I'm not being sufficiently realistic about the consequences <laughs> of having a drill bit embedded in your cerebellum? Because I resent that, Matt, actually. I resent that. I'm hurt by that. I'm a very empathetic person. <laughs> all, all I'm saying is I think there'd be a few people who would drill into their own head and then think, well, it hasn't worked. I mean, I am in some discomfort, but I'd imagine sooner or later this is going to kill me anyway, so I'm just going to get comfortable on the sofa and wait. <laughs> yeah, but then maybe they just get to the point where it's like, no comfort will meet the case. Apparently, <laughs> drilling a hole in your head makes comfort impractical. <laughs> Fuck it, I'm going to the hospital to get more comfort pills. <laughs> like, yeah. If you didn't want to experience the discomfort of having a drill bit-sized hole in your brain, my, my number one tip for avoiding that experience is not to put a drill bit in your brain. <laughs> It's the kind of public service broadcast you didn't think you'd have to do at any point in your life, this, isn't it? It, it? it is, but I'll tell you what, 
as I have explored the deep and terrifying ocean of the the world of English language literature, I've discovered that there is literally no public service announcement that doesn't need to be given to somebody somewhere in the world of literature. <laughs> and that's what we're here for. Uh, so, so he's going hunting these rabbits. He, he sort of goes over to where there are all these warrens and there's a big black rabbit just sitting there. So he shoots it and the rabbit actually, he, he actually hits it in the side. But instead of sort of running away, the rabbit charges him and basically <laughs> attacks him. And, uh, and, and he, has this, he ends up having this sort of melee scrap where he belts it one with a catapult. The, with the rabbit bites rabbit. him and he ends up throttling the thing with the catapult. And then the catapult snaps and it says, you know, it's the end of the Black Destroyer, which is the name for his catapult. What a weird... I mean, what did, you, what did you think of this? Well, he's... I mean... <laughs> <laughs> um, I, there was... A, right. <laughs> so he walks in. He walks into this field. And he's, and he's brilliant because he's doing this incredibly self... Like, he clearly gains a sense of power from his degree of control over what happens in this situation. Yeah. So he's, like, explaining in deep depth, like, how how he walks really slowly and moves really carefully and he sways the gun from side to side in order to lift it up and not startle the rabbit. And the rabbit's looking right at him, but it doesn't move. And then he fires. And to this point in the novel, you're thinking, right, that's the rabbit done, or the rabbit's going to run away. Yeah. And kudos, I have to say, to Ian Banks for being like, no, 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 mate. There's always a secret option C. <laughs> and secret option C in this case is literally straight out of Monty Python. And the rabbit just goes for the face. And I was like, as I say, I was, I was reading this over breakfast, which I ate, like I was, I was out. I had breakfast out this morning. And so I read this in a cafe with like an increase, apparently increasingly disgusted look on my face. So the, like the, 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 like I must, it must have looked like the, the stuff I'd eaten was just horrible taste <laughs> what was happening in the book. And then at this point, like I must have just done a complete 180 in my facial expression because I, I literally laughed aloud. Like when I was like, the, the sentence starts and you're like, and the rabbit started coming and you're like, did I just read that? I did just read that. It's the fucking rabbit's going for him. This is amazing. <laughs> It goes for the face. It goes for the face. And it's flipping, um, it's uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's the rabbit that kills all these people, blood spurting out of their jugular veins and shit. Like, just just unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, speaking of unbelievable, so, so the rabbit's dead, but his catapult is finished. So this just sends him off to deep end. He's furious. Um, yeah. So he goes back to his house, picks up his war bag, which is where he keeps all his like most his big explosives. <laughs> yeah, a kid like this has got something called a war bag. Yeah. This does not end well. Yeah. So he basically plants a load of explosives in the rabbit warrens, blows them and up. in the and in the rabbit. And, can we point yeah, that out? Yeah, yeah. It describes the, the process of stuffing the rabbit <laughs> with a bomb. And once again, I say to you, watch list. Watch list, flipping TSA watch list. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Jeez. So he does that, plants all his explosives, blows them up, and then as any rabbits emerge, um, sort of dazed, he 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 flame he gets a flamethrower and yeah. sort of finishes them off. I mean, wow. Well, well, I mean, quite. <laughs> although, although I will say this. 
I will say this, and I'm aware that this is a sign of how, like, irredeemably flipping Guardian reader I am, right? Because I was thinking, can he not just try and understand? No, I wasn't thinking that. What I was thinking was, what are you doing wasting all of those delicious rabbits? <laughs> that was what I was thinking. I was like, what's the matter with you? You could cook, you know, you know, you hunt, live off the land, eat the, get the rabbit, cook the rabbit. Rabbits are delicious. Yeah, eat a rabbit. He's already you fucking co- idiot. He's already cooked it, hasn't he? He just needs to eat it. Oh, <laughs> Bloody, yeah, yeah, that's the, the, and the thing is, again, you know that inside the next 12 months in The Guardian, somebody is going to try and start a fan like frigging Huger this year. Next year's Huger is going to be... <laughs> Flame thro- petrol-filled flamethrower cooked rabbit. And they're going to be talking about how the delicious hydrocarbon tang really interacts marvellously with the fur of the beast. God. Mark it now, Matt. I'm, I'm, I'm predicting it. This is happening. <laughs> uh, this uh, this uh, massacre leads Frank to remember the first time he killed a person, which is a guy called Blythe Calderham, Calderham which is... Uh, one of his cousins, and for all intents and purposes, was a, a bit of a bully. Well, a lot of one. I think he, I think this guy was probably even crazier than everybody else we've met. From what we get, he's obviously some yeah. kind of some kind of psychopath. Um, so Frank was five. Eric was a couple of years older, and basically, um, I think Eric had made the flamethrower at this point, and Blythe found it when Eric and. Uh, Eric and Frank weren't there and basically used it on the pet rabbits in the uh, they've got a, had a little rabbit hutch at the house and he basically burned it to the ground with this flamethrower and Eric was Eric was distraught because it was his flamethrower um, <laughs> what a world this is that they live in yeah yeah that's it this is my flamethrower and therefore I'm responsible rather than those are my rabbits you fuck like, yeah. yeah like and 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 I think there's an interesting little parallel here between, like... Because this comes right after the thing where he's talking yeah. about flamethrowing all of these rabbits. And yeah. so it's like, he doesn't... The reason that it was bad that Blythe killed all of those rabbits was not that he killed the rabbits, it's that Eric was upset as a result of it. And I actually think that's quite insightful and quite horrifyingly so, really, because I mm. think there's an extent to which... One of the ways when you're a kid, you kind of get your head around what's what's bad and what's good or like what, what really upsets you and what doesn't is something happens, but it's then about the reaction of the people around you to that thing. And if somebody's really upset, that's what you remember. Yeah. And I think it's it was a little dis- discouraging or disquieting to um, to to sympathize on some level with a character who's this awful mm. and i think that's i i think that's totally ian banks's jam obviously is yeah. writing kind of like almost cartoonish grotesques and then being like yeah and then just basically writing equals you and you're like ah! <laughs> yeah so five-year-old um frank um doesn't forget about this and the next time blythe comes around blythe's got a wooden leg um, in, uh, by the time he comes back, because he was involved in some kind of um, car accident and chicken accident, he was getting some. He was yeah. playing chicken with a kid. It says, yeah. and he lost a leg, and the kid lost his life. Yeah, yeah. Don't play chicken, kids. <laughs> Do not play that game. Yeah. So, so they, they're sort of they're just knocking about together, the three of them. Um, they end up all having a bit of a nap in this field, and uh, Frank wanders off to the bunker. 
and he comes across this adder. So he catches it, sticks it in a can, and then basically tips it into Blythe's wooden leg. So when Blythe straps the leg on later on, the adder, bi- the adder bites him, stings him. I'm not sure what, yeah. but kills him somehow. Um, can, right. can, you, can you die from an adder sting? Well, I didn't think so. I mean, I knew they were poisonous, and you had to be careful. And I know they can kill dogs, but mm. I suppose, I mean, a kid. Like, yeah. I'm not certain they can take out an adult, but a kid. But here, here is my thing with this. How many five-year-olds do you know? <laughs> leaving aside... Yeah, I this. <laughs> <laughs> leaving aside the sort of practical morality of what's gone on in the last, whatever that is, 60 months of human existence that have convinced this kid that this is an appropriate thing to do <laughs> and given him the wherewithal to imagine doing it. What has gone on? How many five-year-olds do you know who are able to dexterously capture a sleeping poisonous snake and hatch a scheme for putting that sleeping poisonous snake inside a hollow leg in order to kill another human being who they're related to, right? And and, and for some reason, in the middle of this, the, the image he chooses to use to describe what this was like is he describes this kid's stump of his leg poking up in the air like some kind of, and I quote, monstrous erection (sighs) right so there are a number of problems there aren't there (laughs) from dexterity of of physical ability to dexterity of imagery none of that rings true as being like a five-year-old to me so either (laughs) ian banks is guilty here of backwards projecting all of the most fucked up things that a grown-up thinks onto a child and calling it realism or Ian Banks was like that as a five-year-old. These are the two options that we have here, right? <laughs> like, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah. It was. It's pretty. It's it's pretty mad. And and to, to answer your question, Dave, no, I haven't met many five-year-olds who um, who have the wherewithal <laughs> to do that. Many or any, because in this case, in this particular example, I think the difference between having met many of them or any of them is quite important. And maybe you should. <laughs> break off from this recording and go and contact their parents. <laughs> Toot sweet. Uh, the, the end of this chapter is uh, he goes to bed with his dad still out and he's thinking about the his first kill. But he, he also says, oh yeah, and I killed two other people too. Uh, my brother, Paul, and my cousin, Esmeralda. And then rather, rather blithely just says, it was just a stage I was going through. I mean... <laughs> Stages you go through as a teenager, many of which are horrifying, but on a completely different scale to this. You know what I mean? You're addicted to your family a little bit. Maybe, maybe you're pointlessly destructive of relationships, property, or opportunity. Possibly all of those things. <sighs> a three-person killing spree, all of people you're related to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we move on to the next chapter, which is In the Bunker. Um, and uh, Frank says that he has two enemies in life, uh, women and the sea. So um, there you go. That's uh... <laughs> <laughs> and and I, this is really interesting, and this is the point where I kind of changed in my approach to this book a little bit, and, but only because I've read Ian Banks' latest stuff where he is very avowedly and often violently feminist. Hmm. Um, until this point, I wasn't 100% whether, I was, whether Ian Banks was saying, you should. This is your protagonist, so you should sympathise with him, right? Yeah. Um, on some level, this is somebody that you should be rooting for. 
Um, Because so far in this book, there's not a single character that I would root for to win in any contest against anybody. Um, Not in that case, unlike Game of Thrones. Hmm. Um, Whereas, uh, yeah, so it wasn't until this point where I was like, oh, oh, right, okay, he is a wrong one then. Cheers, Ian. (laughs) This is the way he can sort of clearly say that, just because of your knowledge of of his other books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so he's the two avowed enemies. Um, he he has this more very specific morning routine. Has like a specific number of um, strokes of it um, that he uses shaving, and a very specific number of things that he does. It feels kind of autistic. This um, well, it it does, doesn't it? And and I was I was kind of reminded of um, the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. Yeah, um, which is is famously also relates to kind of spectrum disorder behavior but i so i think it's it's very much worth saying that when i read that and i spoke to some friends of mine um who uh either have uh, like they're somewhere on the autistic spectrum um like diagnosed somewhere on the autistic spectrum or friends who have family members who are Mm. uh, autistic spectrum um the quote i heard most often was if you've met one person with autism you've met one person with autism and I thought that was a pretty good kind of quote in that it's just such a broad mm. span of, of of things, right? So I think it's important to say that because I have no desire to act as though this guy who happens to be crazy in an autistic way is representative of autism. That yeah. said, you're absolutely right. He's like counting strokes of the razor on his face and he's got very clearly got very strong routines for all the shit that he wants and needs to do and all of this sort of thing. And so but having read the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime first, it was really weird because this is like the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime but like the director's cut rated 18 version. <laughs> it's like the curious incident of the dog, the rabbits, the wasps <laughs> yeah, the flamethrowers and the dead relatives in the nighttime. Yeah, it's funny because his his dad displays sort of another often sort of quoted side of um, you know what some people who are autistic can be like, which is that that sort of um, almost a, a fantastic knowledge of of all those like measurements that he just keeps in his head and the sudden like obsession with just randomly coming out and talking about them. That felt quite curious incident in the dog in the nighttime as well. It seems like there's, it, it does, they've, yeah, they've yeah. both got elements of of that in the characters. Um, yeah, as he's running, he's, he, he for today he runs over to the bunker again, and as he's running over, these two jets go screaming overhead because they have these um, like military testing around here as well. I just thought that was a nice yeah. bit of world building that felt really apt in this place. Very much, and it is actually that is really in the middle of all this grotesquery that's true to life. Like that mm. happens all the time in um, uh, when you're in sort of remote parts of the UK, doesn't it? Mm. Like where, because that's where they practice all the fighter pilot stuff. Because you're only going to piss off like a hundred people instead of several hundred thousand. Yeah. Um, so they never do it over cities, but they do it over countryside. And it is such a weird juxtaposition to be in this kind of really kind of almost prehistorically peaceful environment. And then this death machine swoops over you from above. And that's something Ian Banks is really good at, is like putting the machinery of war in a position where it's it's evidently grotesque. Yeah. Or it's it's evidently shocking in a way that has it's not usually because it's been normalized because, you know, we think of a military as a an ordinary thing and he's saying that that may be the case, but it still has to do with 
astonishing capacity for violence, right? Yeah, yeah, and we see this um, a more historic version of this military here, where he goes to an old concrete bunker, and um, he goes in there, and it's he's, he's turned it into this weird kind of shrine where he's got this skull yeah. of his old dog um, with a candle in it. Um, there are a lot of there are a lot of there are a lot of candles which. which He's, he's melted around wasps, so you better they're basically wasp candles, um, and yeah, he basically incinerates this wasp, and it's almost like to, to 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 read the tea leaves to see if he can predict the future. It's weird, isn't it? Like this legit takes a turn into a like a less communal version of um, the Wicker Man, isn't it? At this point. Yeah, remote remote Scottish island, an extremely strange ritualistic behaviour that definitely is going to involve the death of at least one otherwise innocent human being <laughs> with bees, not the bees with yeah exactly with bees, <laughs> amazing, <laughs> brilliant. Oh my word! So so we as well as everything else, what we have done here is confirm that um, the Nick Cage remake of. Uh, the the otherwise acknowledged masterpiece, uh, The Wicker Man, uh, in 2007, not only ripped off its name and its basic premise, but also one of its few steps outside the boundaries of the blueprint set by the earlier film. Yeah. <laughs> Adds all these fucking bees. And he stole it from the Wasp Factory. Nick, <laughs> Nick, 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 Nick. <laughs> Deary me. Yeah. So he does his weird stuff there, and then he goes into town. He's going catapult shopping. He's got to get a new catapult, um, and he goes to the cafe as well. Uh, it's, it's quite. This is quite useful, basically, just to see. He does go into town, but he very much feels and is seen like an outcast. This is touching on this how um, these people used to, in the town used to tell stories to the kids, saying Eric's going to get you. Um, if you don't yeah. behave, and that sort of slowly develops to effectively Frank will get you, because um, people yeah. sort of start seeing him as the um, the, the, the little monster. Um, no, you know, not, not entirely unjustifiably, uh, considering <laughs> what we've seen him get up to. Um, yeah, once again, this is like this is sort of if Boo Radley really was what everybody believed him to be. Yeah, yeah, and Scottish. Yeah, he also just mentions here that um, he builds his own bombs. But that he really shouldn't have to because there is a shit ton of explosives in the cellar underneath this house where he lives. There's loads of cordite. Which which was it, was it like his his granddad just got from a from a an an old sort of navy ship or something like that? Yeah. So so I want to know how that how that acquisition process went down. Like, so fair enough. You know, you're in a small town. Everybody knows you. You know, it's more likely that, you know, people will bend rules and so on. But there's a warship, which is, one of its magazines is still dry. Hmm. And a bloke who lives on an island just off the shore comes up to you and goes, can I have that? Who is it that says yes to that? Like, who is it goes, yeah, shoot us a tenner, you'll be fine. Like, please feel free to turn your house into a bomb. Yeah, simpler time, Dave, simpler time. Yeah, yeah, well, as I say... Flipping heck. Oh, my word. <laughs> By the way, interesting interesting uh, trivia at this point. Did you know that when Ian Banks, um, he applied to university, and um, on the UCAS form in the UK, like it has, like, what are your interests? Hmm. And that's where you're supposed to do a whole personal statement about how brilliant you are. Yeah. Um, and once again, simpler times. But um, he, he wrote, 
explosives. <laughs> That's what he wrote. That was his personal statement. My interests are explosives. <laughs> and he fucking got in. He, he went to the University of Stirling writing the single word explosives for his university personal statement. And I'll tell you, Matt, simpler friggin' times. Because if you or I had written that in our personal statement, we wouldn't have gone anywhere near an institution of higher learning, would we? We would have been locked up too fucking sweet. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think... Um... If, if you do want to get in, normally, your best course of action for interests, maybe put down something like uh, learning and basically just staying out of trouble. That's they're my my keen interests, so uh, get me to that university. Although no one's going to believe <laughs> you, to be honest. Um, yeah, well, quite, yeah. So he has dinner with his dad later on, and it's funny here because in this conversation, his dad is doing the sort of classic parenting sort of worry things where he's saying things like you know he's basically saying make sure you eat properly and don't get drunk but he's saying them in a real like abusive and aggressive way um and again it just it was just more of this very complicated relationship that these two characters have Um, yeah definitely he also swerves into talking about how he can tell what uh Frank's been drinking from his farts. He's got this sort of obsession <laughs> with how farts can tell you everything you need to know about people. Um, it's quite funny this because he he says he you know he's, he's got this mad theory. His dad he keeps keeps writing off to universities about saying how you can smell people's thoughts basically, um, and then he's he's talking about he can tell what what Frank's drunk, and Frank's Frank's like quietly impressed that he, he can name the, the things that he's drunk so. <laughs> and that's it and that's a really good way of keeping you on edge isn't it like with this unreliable narrator thing the fact that Frank himself has, has a very weird look on the world and so you can't be sure that what he's telling you is accurate or true oh don't say that I don't want to go down the Agatha Christie <laughs> and inspect what's it called the death of Roger murder of Roger Ackroyd the murder of Roger Ackroyd oh, don't send right, me back no. there unreliable narrator <laughs> I like that that was a classic of literature and and just for that device you're like no 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 absolutely not no way no 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 we're done <laughs> still hurts um, still hurts I, I know I felt I feel it Matt I feel it um but with this thing as well, where he's like, actually, I have been drinking Guinness, and you clearly smell that on my farts. <laughs> um, I, it's like this kind of pseudoscience I really like, because the other example of this pseudoscience that his dad keeps badgering people about is the idea that the Earth isn't a globe, it's a, it's a Mobius strip. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just fucking love That's really great, because the Earth isn't flat, because there's no edge. But on a Mobius strip, there is no edge. <sighs> so you can see how somebody who's never left a small island off the northwest of Scotland, northeast of Scotland, would be like, yeah, Mobius Strip, yeah. <laughs> you bastards are just having his on. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, so there's that. Frank also remembers the time where, um, for a while, because he's obviously very odd, he got bullied, um, and the end, these bullies ended up trying to attack the island, like just basically come on the island and get him. And they had to, ended up having this fight with, um, I think they had uh, like guns, uh, like air guns, and he had um, like pellets and uh, stones and sort of his catapult. And it sounds like he thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I think yeah. I think he probably enjoyed it more than the bullies because they didn't come back. And probably good for them because in the meantime, uh, Frank built up his war cache, which um, involves petrol bombs and frisbee. Um, Frisbees with razors in them, so it's probably good for the bullies that they decided to leave him well alone after that. Hell. 
It is, isn't it? It's, it's that sight of a bully being roundly kind of outpaced. It's as if this whole <laughs> book takes place in the five minutes at the end of Carrie by Stephen King. <laughs> That's what this is like. This is apparently powerful people being totally outflanked by the completely uncontainable mania of the people that they're trying to torment. Yeah, yeah. It, it, there was an element of that. It's sort of like, oh, you're from a difficult background and you're taking it out on me by being being nasty. Well, say hello to petrol bombs and frisbee planted raisins. <laughs> <laughs> it really is, isn't it? I mean, flipping it. And I, this was the point, and I'm sure we will come back to this over the course of this book, but I couldn't help imagining what it would be like to be the local news reporter that has to report on this situation after what's clearly going to go down has gone down and then there's just, you know, there's a news story to be written about it. And you're like, so you're telling me I've got 500 words and in these 500 words I have to get war caches around the island, I have to get dysfunctional relationship with father, I have to get homicidal tendencies from a very early age towards three different family members, I have to get World War II pillbox containing a shrine involving the skull of a dead dog, and I have to get a basement full of cordite into the above the fold is what you're telling me at this point <laughs> cool 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 yeah great yeah definitely mate definitely oh this would be the story that just runs just keeps on giving you do a new line every day for about a year wouldn't you <laughs> that's it isn't it it's a journalist paradise <laughs> so um so yeah towards the end of the evening he gets a second call from eric um, and this time his dad's at the top of these stairs, so um, actually Frank covers for him and he pretends that Eric's someone else, and um, his dad wanders off, so then they can have a proper chat, and Eric apparently... Yeah, is really e- really get down to brass tacks, really have yeah, a heart-to-heart. Yeah, really talk about how Eric apparently is eating dogs now, um, and also <laughs> shoplifting, but only shoplifting things that he doesn't want to eat. Um, <laughs> and he says in the middle of it, a, a family-sized bag of crisps, as though it's as insane to eat one of those things to yourself as it is to eat the other things he names, like tampons and yeah. candles and shit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, I humbly submit here that Ian Banks, far from being the boundary-pushing enfant terrible he wants to be, is being touchingly naive and even astonishingly limited and puritan in his taste, because I could eat a family-sized bag of crisps without breaking a sweat. I don't know about you. Like, that just... It shows a, a, a shocking lack of effort on his part, I think. I did wonder where you were going there when you started saying, I can eat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we're all... We're sharing is caring, Matt, and you've already revealed that you've got homicidal tendencies or whatever it was that we discovered. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I overeat. You eat... No, 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 I was going to say you eat dogs. <laughs> well, I, do not we all? <laughs> no? I, I would say I could eat... Uh, Tread carefully. A dog. Could you, could you, could you, could you, would you eat dog? They, they, they do um, eat it well, in some countries. I mean, as you may know, yes, I live not terribly far away from one of those countries, and so it's very possible that I have without <laughs> knowing it. Um, uh, I mean, I would want it to be raised you know humanely and and you know with that in mind killed humanely and so on i wouldn't necessarily have a problem i've eaten loads of other kinds of weird meat yeah but um uh i wouldn't necessarily uh object as such oh eric also says that um he hasn't slept because you don't need to sleep it's just something that they tell you that people tell you you need to do and if you work if you try hard enough you don't have to do it which may give you a, a another sort of feel for just how crazy this guy is 
Yeah. Um, and oh, and, uh, and and Frank queries this thing about the bag of crisps, and uh, it leads to another outburst where Eric, of course, smashes up the phone box again. <laughs> this is brilliant. This is surely laying a trail of crumbs. Mm-hmm. Just go around looking at every smashed up phone box in Scotland, and you'll work out where this kid's been. Yeah, who are these policemen? Come on, <laughs> he's, leaving, he's leaving a trail of destruction here. Come on, guys. Come on, pull your fingers out. Yeah, um, so that that's us. That, that's the first three chapters done. Um, as I say, next week read as far as the Wasp Factory. Uh, Dave, initial impression. <laughs> I am genuinely without the capacity to describe my first impression of this book. I am, and I think that's the point. Ian Banks is whatever else he is is unique. There's nobody else who writes like Ian Banks. Hmm. Um, so no, I'm I'm intrigued, weirdly, and also a little disgusted, and definitely, definitely going to re- read this book in the broad daylight in the middle of the day, but not when I'm eating food because yeah. nobody needs that. Yeah. How about you? What did you think? Yeah. If you're hoping for it to get less gruesome than this, um, don't don't basically because <laughs> it it doesn't get less gruesome. Um, yeah, it's it. Like I said at the start, it's funny this because um, I've read I've read another Ian Banks book and I didn't like it. And I, I started reading this one after it and thought, oh, I'll give it a go because it's very you know very famous and well received, critically critically well received. And um, and yeah, there's something weirdly fascinating about it. And uh, yeah, and I don't know. I wouldn't say I enjoy reading it, but. I also find it very hard to put down, so I think that's quite a skill to create a book where you can have those emotions simultaneously. So be yeah, it'd be interesting to see how we get on with the next two thirds of it as well. Yes, I'm definitely I'm definitely uh, in agreement with that, and I'm curious about where we go next. Mm. Um, at this point, it reminds me a lot of a book he wrote later called Complicity, which is full of like incredibly graphic descriptions of violence, and so which therefore I've only read once. Yeah, all the way through, and I suspect at this point I'm not going to come back to the Wasp Factory terribly soon in order to read it through again. <laughs> but for a one-time ride, Matt, for a, like the like the roller coaster at some. Um, uh, uh, Horrorland last week. Mm-hmm. Ride broken. Ride anyway. You bet your ass. <laughs> if you want to ride along with us, um, if you have any thoughts on the book, you can either do us a review or just tell us about what you make of it so far. Uh, just uh, send your reviews and uh, and your comments to sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com. That's sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at sharkliveroyal. Till next time, Dave. Till next time, Matt. Don't be too disgusted, although. You may be. Well, I, I will be for the two-hour period during which I'm reading the next part of the book. I make no promises. <laughs> See you next time. That is. <laughs> <laughs>